Amen. Well, last week, I didn't preach on Romans. Uh, we were in the city park, and uh, it was the community service. And I think a lot of you, most of you, all of you were there. So I took the opportunity to then to preach on the, right, preach, on about, preach about soil to a bunch of uh, farmers in the given community. That seemed like the right thing to do. This week, we're back in Romans chapter 8. And just to get us up to speed, here's what we missed last week from the first part of Romans chapter 8. Because it's, it's pretty... Um, It'd be pretty hard to follow all this without knowing what we missed last week. Paul's great question from the sermon two weeks ago, right? He, he talks about the struggle between sin that still hangs on to us and the believer's desire to serve God and just be holy, to not be hindered by selfishness and gossiping and self-concern and all of the sin that still hangs on to us. How do we resolve this issue? And he says at the end of that chapter, thank God the answer is in Jesus Christ, our Lord. And then he goes to chapter 8. And remember, when Paul was writing Romans, he didn't write in in big, bold letters, chapter 8. Chapters and verses came in the medieval period, like 1,000, 1,500 years after the scriptures were written. So for Paul, this is just moving right along from one thought to the next. He makes this incredible statement. So now there is no condemnation for those who belong to Christ Jesus. And because you belong to him, the power of the life-giving spirit that has freed you from the power of sin, has, that, that life-giving spirit has freed you from the power of sin that leads to death. The law of Moses was unable to save us because of the weakness of our sinful nature. So God did what the law could not do. He sent his own son in a body like the bodies we sinners have. And in that body, God declared an end to sin's control over us by giving his son as a sacrifice for our sins. He did this so that the just requirement of the law would be fully satisfied in us. Right? The law still makes its demands that we be perfect and holy and that our sin be atoned for. Jesus satisfies that demand. For us, who no longer follow our sinful nature, but instead follow the Spirit. And a little while later, he, he buttons that up by saying, whoever has received the Spirit of God and follows his leadings has become a child of God. And if you're a child of God, well, here's how we arrive at the beginning of today's texts. And since we are his children, we are his heirs. In fact, together with Christ, we are heirs of God's glory. But if we are to share in his glory, we must also share his suffering. Yet what we suffer now is nothing compared to the glory he will reveal to us later. Friends, we are living in an anomalous time. You all are an anomaly in the kindest sense of the word. Never have political and cultural conditions been so favorable to Christians for so long as they are here. When Paul wrote this to the church in Rome, it was not safe or okay. It, in fact, it was costly, very costly, to openly be a Christian and to take a stand against the way of the world. To say, not that Caesar is Lord, hail Caesar, but to say Jesus is Lord. When we hear that sharing in Christ's glory is conditioned upon also sharing in his suffering, we get uneasy because that sounds like a summons into something new that we're not sure that we want. It sounds like a summons into something that's not already happening for us. We live 
privileged lives as American Christians. For example, just find the nearest tap and turn it on. We take so many things for granted. We enjoy freedoms in our society, freedoms from our government that most Christians in history have never experienced. And most Christians in the world today, I would put it to you, aren't experiencing. For the original audience, this summons to suffering was actually good news. It was an encouragement for them, if you can believe that, because they were already suffering at the hands of a world that was hostile to the gospel. So this word from Paul reframed that suffering for them. The beatings, imprisonments, confiscation of their property, and cruel executions. Being covered with tar and lit up for evening light for Caesar's garden parties. Being thrown into the Colosseum. Whole families at one time. To be food for lions. These things the early church endured, they didn't erode their confidence in Christ, but rather galvanized it. Because for them, they heard this promise. The more we share in Christ's sufferings, the more we share in his glory. We hear this very differently because we don't face anything like that. We don't face anything like what the early church did. But Paul isn't only talking about suffering for the sake of the gospel. Any and every kind of suffering we face in this world that is riddled with sin, it's shot through with it. It's like a sponge that can't possibly hold anymore. And every time you bump it or squeeze it, the effects of sin, right? Death, violence, decay, loss come pouring out. All suffering is in view here. And though we do our best in 21st century America to block this out, creation tells us all the time that things are not okay. Things are not right right now. Paul says in verses 19 through 21 of chapter 8, all creation is waiting eagerly for that future day when God will reveal who his children really are. Against its will, all creation was subjected to God's curse. Creation has a will. Did you know that? But with eager hope, the creation looks forward to the day when it will join God's children in glorious freedom from death and decay. Remember that when Adam and Eve sinned, it wasn't only humanity that was put under the curse. Satan was cursed, right, to slither on his belly all the days of his life and eat dust. But also all of creation has been affected by sin's entrance into the world. This is from Genesis chapter 3, way at the beginning. And to the man, he said, since you listened to your wife and ate from the tree whose fruit I commanded you not to eat, the what is cursed because of you? The ground. The ground is cursed because of you. All your life, you will struggle to scratch a living from it. It will grow thorns and thistles for you, though you will eat of its grains. Now, when the power of that curse was broken by the death of Jesus Christ in your place, not only were you saved and given the hope of endless glory, the entire creation has also been let in on the secret, on the mystery that a day is coming when everything is going to change. The trees know it. The soil knows it. The sky knows it. The rocks are crying out, how long, O Lord? <coughs> Until your children 
sons and daughters of the king, stop abusing the creation. In this morning's prayer of the church, we're going to mention that Jesus died to redeem the world and to restore creation. In the prayer of thanksgiving, during the service of the sacrament, we're going to remember that God promised salvation by a second Adam, your son, Jesus Christ our Lord, and made his cross a life-giving tree for all who trust in him. There's creation language again. Jesus as the second Adam. The cross of Christ is a tree whose fruit we partake for the strengthening of our faith and the preservation of our souls and bodies to everlasting life. And that's also, by the way, this, this restoration of nature, this promised perfection to come, not just for us and our bodies, but for our fields, for our lawns, for the trees, for the wildlife, for all of that to be made perfect, as it was always meant to be, one of the most popular hymns goes like this. And you can name that tune, right? One hymn goes, um, And heaven and nature sing. And heaven and nature sing. And heaven and nature sing. Joy to the world. Joy to the what? World. All the people in the world, sure. But also, literally, joy to the world, the earth, the creation, because of Jesus. It goes on. While fields and floods, rocks, hills, and plains repeat the sounding joy. Not just in a sense of echoing, but these things too are singing. Like when we read Psalms responsively. Or if you've ever, you know, in a, in a church service where we have one side of the room sing a stanza, and then the next side of the room sings a, sings a stanza, and we kind of carry it back and forth. And then get this in stanza three. No more let sins and sorrows grow. Remember what God said to Adam that what was going to grow now? The ground is cursed because of you. All your life will, you will struggle to scratch a living from it. It will grow what? Thorns and thistles. And when we're singing joy to the world this Christmas, remember this moment when you sing, no more let sins and sorrows grow, nor thorns infest the ground. Seems like kind of a small thing. Like it's a Christmas time, the ground is covered with snow, the piles in the parking lot are 18 feet high. What thorns are we talking about? Maybe we should be singing and praying for something a little more grand than for there not to be any thistles anymore. We're talking about Genesis 3, we're talking about Romans 8, the future restoration of the created order because of Jesus. He comes to make his blessings flow far as the curse is found. Paul says it like this in Romans 8, 22. For we know that all creation has been groaning as in the pains of childbirth right up to the present time. Before I continue on this, I think it's interesting. I don't know what to make of this, really, that Paul, who's never been groaning in the pains of childbirth, uses this image. What does he know about it? I'm not sure. But he uses this image that there is pain, there is labor. That's not pointless. It's not senseless. The end is something glorious. At the end, there's relief. At the end, there's joy. He says, we believers also groan, even though we have the Holy Spirit within us, as a foretaste of future glory. For we long for our bodies to be released from sin and suffering. We too 
wait with eager hope for the day when God will give us our full rights as his adopted children, including the new bodies he has promised us. You have not yet been given your full rights as an adopted child of God. Not because God is stingy with you, but because the time isn't right yet. Another level is going to be unlocked someday. Another dose, outpouring of glory and joy and blessing is ahead. You don't have to get used to this forever. New bodies, he has promised us. We were given this hope when we were saved. In other words, if it seems to you like things are not going well in our world, you're right. Creation groans. We also eagerly look forward to this. Natural disasters happen all the time and extinguish lives in a moment. Earlier this year in February, in Turkey and Syria, there was this earthquake. 70,000 lives lost. These things happen all the time. Earthquakes, tsunamis. Remember in 2004, the day after Christmas, 225,000 lives lost. Did you know that more than 800 children under age five die every day because the water they drink kills them? It's not clean. More than 800 children under age five every day. Things are not okay here. Just because they're okay for you does not mean they're okay. 771 million people, that's one in 10 on the planet, do not have access to clean, safe drinking water. That's why I said we're privileged earlier, and I said go find the nearest tap and turn it on. You let that thing run all day and all night. We all, I think, feel, we long for our bodies to be released from sin and suffering. We all... I look out, I see your faces. We know, right? We've all got things we're going through. We want our bodies to be free from the effects of sin. The effects of our own sin, the effects of others' sin, the effects of just sin in the world. We want to be free from suffering. But part of the issue is that the creation around us is saturated with our sin. We messed this up. And we still mess it up. Our relationship to creation is disordered. If you enjoy a delicious bacon cheeseburger, make it a double bacon cheeseburger. Actually, make it a brat burger with cheese and sauerkraut. Or a perfect creamy milkshake or some smoked brisket or a glass of clean cold water and you have no gratitude to God whatsoever, you're subjecting creation to futility. You're using creation against its will. You're subjecting it to the curse. If you use the created world in such a way as to gain profit or value for yourself with total disregard for everyone else, right, through irresponsible use of resources or buying more stuff than you need and hoarding it. Remember all that toilet paper craze a couple years ago? Everyone runs to the nearest store and gets all that they can. Or if you treat the outdoors as your garbage bin, then you're using creation against its will and you're subjecting it to the curse. Remember, humans were fashioned by God to rule over the rest of creation. We were to be served by creation. We were supposed to tend it and keep it 
and enjoy it, and in so doing, return praise to God for this glorious thing that he set up for us. Any deviation from that is moving further in the direction that Adam and Eve went when they got us into this whole mess to begin with. When God said, the whole creation is yours, I just want you to be, be mindful that you use it in this one particular way. Don't eat from this tree. Eat everything else. Don't eat from this one tree. And as we all know, they said, nah, that tree looks like it's got good fruit. We've had everything else. Why doesn't he want us to eat that one? So they go for it. It's not only you that will die because of your sins. The entire created order is subject to God's curse because of sin. Everything that God made and called good in Genesis 1 and 2 is not good anymore because of sin. Our selfishness, not our selfishness, not only condemns us, but it also means that our misuse of creation wreaks havoc on others too. And creation itself protests against our, mis our misuse of it. And I'm not saying that our sins make earthquakes and tsunamis happen across the world. This isn't like some weird butterfly effect thing. You're not personally responsible for that. But we are sinners. Sin is in the world not because of God, but because of us. Collectively, this is our burden. This is our responsibility. But Christ met your selfishness with selflessness. Christ, who rightly sat above the entire created order as its maker and ruler, entered into creation as a human. He didn't save us from afar, but he assumed humanity because we're the ones who messed this all up. And Jesus subjected himself to the sinful treatment of others, ultimately giving up his life for you. Christ entered creation, suffering the most senseless and depraved abuse, so that he might be the deliverer of all those who suffer in this disordered, fallen world. The lives lost in earthquakes and other natural disasters are lives that he created, lives that he loves, lives that he even now holds in his hand, close to him. The Lord, who in the midst of his suffering on the cross, said, I'm thirsty. Knows the names of every child who dies because they are thirsty. In his death on the cross, Christ has paid the price that our sin demands. He entered into death in order to unravel sin's power even there. Therefore, Jesus has completely set all who believe in him free from the bondage of death and decay. Death is not the end for you because it was not the end for Jesus. What is the end for Jesus and for you? Remember what we said in the creed at the end of the second part? He will come again with what? Glory. Not glory that just only belongs to him. Glory that's scary. Glory that strikes fear and terror into our hearts. He's coming with glory for you. To reveal what your life truly is. Glory that far outweighs the sufferings of today. 
the very end of the Bible, Revelation chapter 21 says this, he will wipe away every tear from their eyes. And death shall be no more, neither shall there be mourning, nor crying, nor pain anymore. For the former things have passed away. With all of creation, we cry out, come, Lord Jesus, in the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit. Amen.